The following is a presentation from the MJ Cast, the internet's premier podcast on all things Michael Jackson. You're listening to the MJ Cast by MJ fans or MJ fans. The idea is to uh, innovate, or else why, why am I doing it? When I create my music, I feel like an instrument of nature. You let it create itself, really. I know I do. And I love to entertain. That's that's one of my favorite things. Welcome to the MJ Cast, your source of news and discussion on the King of Pop. Hello and welcome to the MJ Cast. I'm Charles Thompson, flying solo this week for a special instalment of the show. The date is Tuesday, November 15th, 2016, and this is episode 44, the World Music Awards 2006 10th Anniversary Special. Today marks precisely a decade since Michael Jackson appeared at Earl's Court Arena in London to collect an award and deliver a mini-performance of We Are The World. It was a significant event, Michael's first public appearance in the Western world since his acquittal the previous year, but it would take on a new, sadder significance less than three years later, when his homicide cemented its status as the last time he ever performed on stage in front of an audience. But for many fans, it holds a further significance. They experienced something that night and in the following days which caused a seismic shift in their world view and which has caused them upset and frustration ever since. Two fans will tell you in this show that the day after the 2006 World Music Awards was the day they completely lost their ability to believe in the media. The awards should have heralded the triumphant first step on Michael's road to redemption, but fans who attended that night were left aghast as they witnessed firsthand the making of a myth. I was at Earl's Court that night, and I too watched in shock and disbelief as the travesty unfolded. Within hours, the glittering return to the stage had been reduced to a mockery, a lazy punchline which would echo around the globe for weeks and years to come. History was rewritten in real time, and the lie endures today. What I experienced in 2006 has never stopped bothering me, so much so that three years ago I was moved to write an article about it. I called it Conjuring a Chorus of Booze, the truth about Michael Jackson's UK comeback. This show was inspired by that article, and in it I will speak to fellow onlookers, including members of Michael's team, who will describe how they watched with horror as their friend fell victim to a concerted smear campaign. This is the true story of what happened on November 15, 2006. On June 13, 2005, a bruised and beleaguered Michael Jackson emerged from the Santa Maria Courthouse in California, moments after being acquitted on all 14 counts in his high-profile child molestation trial. He refused to give a press conference and barely even acknowledged his fans, walking straight to his blacked-out SUV, climbing inside and disappearing. Weeks later, it was reported that he'd flown to the Middle East, he spent almost a year in Dubai and Bahrain with the odd trip to Europe before swapping the dry heat for the relative cool of rural Ireland. Save for a blink-and-you'd-miss-it appearance at the MTV Awards in Japan in summer 2006, Michael lived as a relative recluse. Occasional projects were announced, a charity single or an album, but none came to fruition. Fans wondered whether he would ever return to the limelight, and few could have blamed him if he didn't. Then, on October 22, 2006, a rumour began circulating among the fan community that Michael would appear at the World Music Awards in London. Many fans were initially sceptical, but a week later it was confirmed in a press release that Michael would attend to receive the Diamond Award, a prize rarely given out, as it was reserved for artists who had sold more than a 100 million records. Michael had long ago sold several times that figure, 
but was about to make history by becoming the only artist ever to receive the award for sales of a single album. Guinness World Records had just certified that Thriller had sold 104 million copies to date. Raymond Bain was Michael's general manager at the time. She told me about Michael's initial reluctance to attend the ceremony and what convinced him to take part. Well, Melissa Corkin, who knew Michael for many, many years, reached out to me and said that um, they wanted to honor him uh, with the uh, Lifetime Achievement Award. He was very honored. He knew uh, Melissa because he had appeared at the World Music Awards um, some years earlier. I can't recall the year. But uh, he knew Melissa very well. And um, this would have been his second public appearance after having been acquitted. So he was a little nervous. At first he was a little apprehensive, but he agreed to do it, and uh, he had a nice time. And uh, why do you think he was apprehensive? Well, um, he had not been in the public for a while. Um, the only thing he had done um, was to go in and out of court for six months, as you know. He had been in Bahrain, but pretty much to relax and to um, get him get himself back um, to the uh, level that you know he had been prior to the case um, having been litigated. And uh, you know this, uh, like I say, was his second uh, public uh, event. Uh, the first was in Japan earlier. This is his second major public appearance uh, in Europe, uh, but his first in Europe, but his second overall after having gone through litigation for six months. So how did you convince Michael to go ahead with the appearance? Well, you know, his fan base in Europe is extremely loyal to him, and um, he has some wonderful fans there in uh, London. Uh, particularly, and uh, he shared a very special relationship with them. And in fact, I hope all of them are doing well. And uh, with that in mind, and with the fact that he was getting the Lifetime Achievement Award, you're always apprehensive. That's that's a part of life. But Michael was the world's greatest performer. He was the king of pop. And he always rose to the occasion, no matter what. I think those of us who were around him were a little bit more nervous and a little bit more apprehensive most of the time than he. He was a professional, and and he always rose to the occasion when he had to. And he looked at this award as having been uh, special. Uh, and then with his relationship with Melissa and his relationship with the fans in Europe and in London, that weighed heavily on him, and he decided to do it. After Michael agreed to participate in the World Music Awards, Raymond began making arrangements. The trip would become one beset by problems, and the first was highly unexpected. The Dorchester, one of Michael's regular London haunts, was the official World Music Awards hotel, where many of the show's artists would be staying. But when Raymond called to book Michael in, she found he'd been banned. Michael had stayed there for several weeks in 2005 and his fans had found out, prompting many to converge outside on a daily and nightly basis, waving banners and chanting. Apparently, they'd landed the hotel with a massive bill for security and damage. 
it was um, disappointing on one hand, but it made Michael feel really good on the other because uh, there were several hotels that Michael would traditionally stay in, one of which was the Dorchester. So when I called over to the Dorchester and I spoke to the general manager, he was very polite, but he said, well, Miss Vane, I'm sorry, but we're not going to be able to accommodate Mr. Jackson at this time. And I said, well, why? Are you all booked? He said, no. He has such loyal fans. Our hotel can't accommodate the numbers of fans that would converge on it, both inside and out. We don't have the capacity to bring in that kind of security that we need, and it has cost us quite a bit of money in the past for you all to stay here um, from a security point of view and with the park being outside and our landscaping, we have had to spend a lot of money having to... Uh, for our upkeep when you all are here, and we just can't afford for you all to stay at this time. Well, we were told that by three or four other hotels. And we were kind of surprised, and Michael was very surprised. He says, you're kidding. And I said, no. And then it happened. Uh, I guess Melissa Corkin, she spoke to one of her friends who had opened a new hotel, which was the Hemphill there. And he called and invited us to come and stay. We did, but that was a funny and a funny warm story because Michael does have wonderful fans and they are some of the most loyal and some of the kindest um, that I have ever seen around an entertainer. And um, so while it was an inconvenience on one hand, it was heartwarming on the other to know that his fans loved him and supported him to the point that we couldn't find a hotel to stay in in London because they were afraid that they would be overrun by so many fans. Meanwhile, reports were beginning to appear in the media which ultimately laid the foundations for a controversy which would come to define the entire trip. A little over a week after Michael's attendance was confirmed, news outlets began reporting that he would not only collect an award, but would stage a comeback performance. The report sparked a frenzy, with fans from around the world booking trips to London to be present for the historic event. Ticket agencies began selling via premium phone lines and only releasing a few hundred tickets at a time. I was 18 years old and I remember my parents being furious that I'd racked up a £100 phone bill without ever even getting through. The news even prompted some fans to go old school and camp outside the box office. Greg Spinks, former owner of the fan site Max Jacks, described the scene. It was very chaotic. Um, I remember last minute finding out that they was going to be releasing tickets at the box office at Earl's Court Arena in London on a Wednesday. They was going to begin selling them at, I think it was stupid o'clock, like um, 7 or 8 o'clock in the morning. I got on a train as quick as I could the following morning after I found out and uh, started, in, started queuing up in line uh, that time that they went on sale and there was already about 30 people, 40 people already queuing. And even though, you know, to me, Michael Jackson was the amazing superstar that he is, I did not expect that there to be many people at that point in time, at that time of morning, queuing up for tickets. So um, already I was, you know, quite excited by that point uh, in the fact that I was queuing up behind about 30 people at that time just to get a ticket. 
for an award ceremony, so to speak. Raymond told me that she had done everything in her power in the lead-up to the ceremony to counter the reports that Michael would perform. It was never a performance, and I don't care who's saying otherwise, that's just not true. It was never a performance. He was never going to sing. He never rehearsed. He didn't have an orchestra together, a band. And I personally told many of the journalists there that Michael Jackson was not singing. Melissa Corkin told them he was not singing. We even had a press release sent out of my office stating he was not performing. And the World Music Awards sent out a press release. I don't know who said what initially, but the days leading up to the World Music Awards, there were many press releases disseminated indicating that Michael Jackson was not singing or performing. And there was no reason for there to be any confusion. An artist on the level of Michael Jackson doesn't just pop up and perform without rehearsing or without a band or without a music director or any of that. And he had just, as I've said, uh, ended extensive litigation. And he was working very hard in putting together his organization again. You know, there were a number of things that he was confronted with, refinancing the loan so that he would not lose his publishing refinancing Neverland, getting his life back together personally and professionally and spending time with his wonderful, brilliant, beautiful kids. And that was Michael Jackson's priority. He was not rehearsing. So whomever decided that they were going to run with the story that Michael Jackson was going to be performing did it deliberately because they knew very well and very clearly, unless they could not read or hear that Michael Jackson was not performing. But although Raymond had been issuing press releases, I could find no evidence in my research for this show of any news outlet having reproduced them. And while Raymond was under the impression that the event organizers were doing the same, I in fact found a number of reports stating that they'd done the exact opposite. On November 7th, USA Today cited the show's organizers as the source for a report it ran saying that Michael would be performing in a costume designed by Roberto Cavalli. The following day, Reuters syndicated a report stating that organizers had confirmed that Michael would perform Thriller. In the story, a spokeswoman for the PR firm Outside Organization, which was publicizing the awards, was quoted. She said, Yes, it's his first performance in a long time. It's something of a comeback, if you like. On the same day, Access Hollywood also reported that Michael Jackson would perform, but said that the song may be We Are the World rather than Thriller. And then there was the World Music Awards' own website, which had two lists for stars attending the ceremony, presenters and performers. Michael Jackson had been listed as a performer. Harrison Funk, Michael's go-to photographer since the mid-80s, recalls the show's organisers telling him that Michael would perform when they called to book him but by the time he arrived at rehearsals on November 14th, that was looking uncertain. I arrived, you know, at Heathrow, went straight to Earl's Court with all my bags, went inside, went to, you know, scope out the, uh, the stage and the setup of the, of the venue and, and uh, where I was shooting from. And I ran into Lavelle and Adrian Grant and the Thriller Live dancers that were going to be dancing with Chris Brown, the dancers were rehearsing and uh, Chris was rehearsing. 
Um, and it got to be, you know, I mean, it was a whole day thing. It was, I was, I was wiped. I had just, I had just flown in, uh, jet lagged, just trying to, to keep going. And about, I guess it was probably, it was early evening sometime. Ramon Bain was, was sitting in the, in the uh, middle of the, the floor at Earl's Court, um, you know, completely empty in a, one of those fold up chairs. And I walked over to her and she's on the phone with Michael. And, um, Michael is, at that point, Michael was, um, pretty insistent. He didn't want to perform because nothing was, nothing had been rehearsed. So you're at this dress rehearsal. You've had a phone call from the, the organizers. The organizers say Michael Jackson is going to perform. You fly into London, get to the dress rehearsal. There's no Michael Jackson, no band, no dancers, and Michael's on the phone expressing not much interest in actually giving a performance. So at that stage, what is your mindset? What a clusterfuck. (laughs) (laughs) Really, I mean, sorry, kids, for the language, but, you know, I, I just... I just shrugged my shoulders and I said, okay, someone must have this under control. And I really thought that, that Ramon did have it under control. I mean, I really thought that, you know, she was very cool, very calm, very collected as she always is. And she hands me the phone and she says, here, talk to your friend. And I said, Michael, what's going on? (laughs) He said, uh, I'm being told I'm supposed to perform and I don't know anything about this. I don't, you know, basically, I mean, I'm paraphrasing cause it's been 10 years, but you know, he, he was surprised to say the least. And I think that judging from the response I, I saw in the people that had brought the, the dancers and, you know, were queuing up the sound and, and, preparing this performance honestly i think that there was a great deal of surprise that he wasn't performing and you know he asked me okay so what what tracks do they have and i i told him and he kind of decided on we are the world he 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 almost didn't come out and actually say it but he did he did in the end um say well t- tell them i'll do we are the world you know i said just one and he said, yeah, we're going to just do We Are the World. And I said, okay, are you sure you only want to do one? Because they're going to go, you know, the audience is going to go nuts. They're going to be, this is your comeback. You know, this is your, this is your, your moment of, of return. They're going to want to hear more. And he said, no, well, you know, basically he said, and, and don't quote me because again, it's 10 years ago and I can't remember the exact words, but it was something like, no, we'll just do one. We'll just do We Are The World. Not just do one, but we'll just do We Are The World. Raymond's recollection, however, is that it was always the agreement that Michael would not perform at the ceremony. Michael Jackson was a perfectionist. You can't perform at the World Music Awards without rehearsing, without a band, without an orchestra. We were told that Michael, they wanted Michael to um, surprise the choir that would be singing We Are the World over his death. On November 15th, fans began descending on the venue at the crack of dawn, 
some having concocted ingenious ruses in their bid to get as close as possible to their hero. But for some, their zeal was their comeuppance. I spoke to Greg Spinks. I remember that I was going to be seeing this, uh, going there with a, with a friend, but this friend didn't finish work until about 3 or 4 p.m. Um, around London time, which was, you know, for me as a hardcore fan, and she wasn't so much of a hardcore fan, I wanted to be there, I wanted to be there, you know, the, any moment, the first moment I could, you know, six o'clock in the morning, I would have been there. And um, I had to wait until about three o'clock until my friend could meet me. And then we sort of rushed to the uh, entrance in where we could queue. It was a very uh, long, dingy corridor. There was, you know, mounds and mounds and mounds of people. Um, the fans that got there the earliest um, would, would have sort of free choice in where they um, ran to or where they you know, were supposed to quietly walk to. There was a, uh, a fan or a few fans that, you know, would, would, would try and uh, get to the front or try and get to the front of any queue uh, at any cost. Um, there was someone that did, you know, make me laugh, make quite a few others laugh, that uh, did have a, a few crutches, you know, and a bad leg. And uh, it, it wasn't apparent that he didn't have a bad leg until... He threw his crotches down and ran towards the stage, uh, quite able, which was hilarious. And then didn't some of them get moved to the back for bad behaviour? Yeah, because there was um, a lot of pushing and shoving, um, a, a lot of ruckus. Um, I remember the organisers or the security for the organisers, they, they announced that everyone that was at the front of the queue, um, the queues were now switched. So for those that were uh, turning up late or turning up later in the day, like myself, around 3 or 4 o'clock, um, they were now more or less at the front. So <laughs> there was a lot of angry people. Understandably, if you hadn't actually done anything wrong and you were there at stupid o'clock in the morning or stupid o'clock in the day to actually be there at the front. That evening, as Michael walked up the red carpet, he gave a brief press conference to assorted TV cameras. During the exchange, which was aired live on some rolling news channels, he twice denied that he was due to perform. Yes. Excellent. Tomorrow? Oh, uh, receiving an award is not a performance. It was a misunderstanding. No, no. It's a misunderstanding. It was a rumor. I love you. Soon afterwards, the show began inside Earl's Court Arena. It got off to a rough start as a technical issue meant Beyoncé had to perform her opening number twice. From then on, things only got worse. The evening was plagued by delays and mistakes. Presenter Lindsay Lohan fluffed her lines during almost every link and had to keep recording them over and over again. The turnaround between performances was slow. In the lengthy gaps, the audience, which seemed to be comprised almost exclusively of hardcore Michael Jackson fans, kept chanting his name. The response to other artists' performances was tepid, sometimes provoking just a polite smattering of applause, followed by reprised chants of Michael's name. The fans were like a baying mob, and their behaviour at times seemed disrespectful. Here's Greg Spinks. I found that quite insulting. Um, I did think... At the time, you know, I want to see Michael. We want everyone. Everyone wants to see Michael. Uh, I think it was only valid to boo or chant or make any sort of noise about it 
when there would be gaps in between performances, you know, uh, for a, for a period of time when nothing was happening. But I didn't think it was valid at all or justified for anyone to boo someone's performance when, you know, they're up there in front of this so many people. I don't think Michael would have appreciated, appreciated that either. The organisation, or, or lack thereof, there was little to none. During uh, the show or the event itself, uh, there were a large period of times in between each act or each performance, uh, one of which I remember being a good 45 minutes, perhaps even an hour. The, the fans got so so upset or so bored of waiting, I guess, people started to get very anxious. Rather than rely on my memory, I dug out some notes that I wrote in the days immediately after the ceremony. I noted that prior to Michael's award being given, the show stopped for 45 minutes and the audience was left watching an empty stage, but from my vantage point, I could see Chris Brown behind the stage dressed in the thriller outfit, which confirmed to me that Michael would not be performing that number in the show. Stood next to the mixing desk, I watched as increasingly concerned-looking crew members had loud discussions about the 11pm curfew, and whether the show was going to finish before the sound and lights were cut out. Chris Brown just stood behind the stage in his thriller outfit for what seemed like an age, waiting to be given the green light. The audience was becoming antsy. Word was spreading around the arena that Michael had been interviewed on live TV as he arrived and had denied that he was performing. Many fans were unsurprised. It had always strained credulity that Michael Jackson, a man who had studiously avoided performing for some time, and in recent years developed a reputation for pulling out of the few things he did agree to, would appear in London to perform a 24-year-old song. Irrespective, there was widespread confusion, and fans were bombarding staff with questions about what was going on. Eventually the lights went down and Chris Brown emerged onto the stage to perform Thriller. As the song concluded, Beyoncé was introduced to the stage to present Michael with his award. I told Raymond Bain that I'd read reports that Beyoncé was chosen at the last minute because everybody else had refused, and I was shocked when she confirmed that the stories were true. Her explanation offers a sad insight into Michael's life after his acquittal. Well, yes, um, there were a number of challenges. Uh, there were some downsides. The press coverage immediately after it and the plans and preparations moving forward before it. And one of those things we had to deal with was the fact that none of the artists who the World Music Awards contacted would agree to present Michael his award. And 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 sometimes that's culture and that's life. You know, people don't want to be around you when they can they perceive you as a loser or someone who is tarnished. Michael was very uh, mature and very. Uh, insightful and he understood that it hurt him but he understood human nature we were told that some wanted to be paid exorbitant amounts of money to present him with his award and we were told others flat out said no they did not want to be associated with Michael Jackson we then pondered who are we going to get to uh, present the King of Pop with his award. Melissa Corkin and Sir uh, Philip Green were very concerned that the respective artists, and, and these were some people who Michael felt he was very close to, turned them down 
unequivocally saying, no, we don't want to do it. And so they approached Beyonce and we never met such a nice, warm, wonderful individual as she. It was my first time meeting her and my first time Michael meeting her. He immediately fell in love with her. There were three women I think Michael Jackson would have walked through fire for. That's his mother, Catherine, his daughter, Paris, and Beyonce Knowles. And it was so funny. Um, after that, the next year, um, Sean Garrett wrote a song, Irreplaceable. To the left, to the left. Well, Michael Jackson would call me up, and before he could say hello, he would sing, to the left, to the left, looked at the box, to the left. I mean, that was his favorite song. He loved her, and he would have been so humbled by the tribute that she made to him at the Super Bowl last year. But more importantly, he knew that there were people whom he thought were his friends who who turned down the opportunity to present to him. And he was so grateful for an artist on the level of Beyonce, whom he had not met prior to that time, agreed to present his award to him. And that started a love affair with Michael Jackson and Beyonce. When Michael did emerge onto a balcony over the stage to accept his award from Beyonce, Earl's Court made a noise the likes of which I doubt I will ever hear again. In my article, Conjuring a Chorus of Booze, I wrote, When Michael Jackson eventually appeared, the place exploded. I've seen Paul McCartney. I've seen Madonna. I've seen Prince. I've seen George Michael. I've never in my life before or since witnessed any artist provoke the response that Michael Jackson provoked that night. He received the most sustained, thunderous reception I've ever seen. He remained on stage for several minutes to deliver two short acceptance speeches, one for his Diamond Award and one for a Guinness World Record presentation. For the duration of his speeches, I hardly heard a word he said, despite the booming sound system. Most artists receive a big cheer as they walk on stage, and then the audience settles down. Michael provoked hysteria, shrieking and crying. It didn't lull once from the moment he appeared on that balcony until he disappeared backstage again. It was an unforgettable sight. I asked my friend Angela Candy, who came to the ceremony with me, how she remembered the audience reacting to Michael's emergence from backstage. It was absolutely deafening. Absolutely deafening. Like when he came out on stage, I mean, I've been to loads of gigs of, you know, different artists, but there's nothing quite like, you know, unfortunately we'll, have, we'll never have that again. There's nothing quite like being at a Michael Jackson it's not even just, it's not even a gig. It's just like when there's a whole load of his fans around, there's something that happens that just doesn't happen with other artists. As Michael was giving his acceptance speeches, crew members began bringing instruments onto the lower stage, sparking a flurry of excitement that he was to descend and perform. But as he left the balcony to continuing cheers, it was Rihanna who emerged onto the lower stage. Quickly, the mood changed, and the audience began to boo her. Here's Angela basically everyone was sort of impatient. They wanted to see Michael and all of these things like, you know, Lindsay Lohan messing up was just seen as like a delay to seeing Michael. Um, so she got booed for that. And when Rihanna came out on stage, 
that they were setting up. Michael came out on stage and did something with Beyonce, and then they were setting up the stage, um, you know, the actual performing stage. And then when she popped out, it, people were going crazy before, expecting him to come out. And uh, when she walked out and started walking down the stairs, uh, she she got booed, which I thought was really unfair. You know, it was really it was that wasn't that wasn't cool. Following another sizable delay, Lindsay Lohan appeared on stage for less than 10 minutes until the 11pm curfew to announce that Michael was returning. A choir of local teenagers took to the stage and Michael's record-breaking 1985 charity anthem, We Are The World, began to play over the sound system. After several minutes of the choir performing alone, Michael emerged onto the stage, microphone in hand, and surprised them. Audience members burst into tears some fainting and having to be rushed away in wheelchairs as Michael walked down the line shaking the youngsters' hands. Greg Spinks describes the scene. The moment Michael came on in stage was everything I hoped it would be and more. I'd never, ever witnessed anything like that in my life. And I'd seen uh, artists previous to that moment, but the sheer excitement and the sh- it, it, it was like watching, you know, the history teasers. It was, it was exactly like that, where you would see all of these people crying, screaming, jumping. And, you know, this went on and on and on and on. My reaction was astounding. This this, this was my one of my favourite performances from uh, We Are The World For Africa. The, the fan reaction around me and the, the general buzz of the entire arena was just... Electric. It was absolutely electric. After greeting the choir, Michael burst into song. Unlike during his speech, I could hear him loud and clear. He was singing live and he sounded good. The experience was almost euphoric. Here's Angela's recollection of the moment. Everyone was ecstatic. Um, even me and you, who are usually quite composed, just went, you know, tried to get into the, you know, the, the bit that comes out of the stage. Like that walkway thing. Yeah. Like we were trying to get as close as possible. I remember you had a massive smile on your face. And um, yeah, everyone was just, it was really, it was it was something special. It really was. You said to me earlier that I was happy because his microphone was switched on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but... I think I, I remember you turning to me going, he's singing live. He's singing live. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I really do remember actually was... Um... It was the first time I'd ever been close up to him. Um, and even though we were not right up at the, at the walkway, it was not that big a venue. And the the walkway went right down the centre. So even if you were stood at the edge, you had quite a close view of him. Mm. Um, and one thing, there's an image burned into my brain. I'll never forget it. I just remember watching him walk down that kind of catwalk. And I remember being struck by the sort of um, majesty with which he walked. There was something kind of very graceful and ethereal, just about the way he moved. I've never seen anyone move like that before. It was almost like he was gliding down the stage rather than walking. Yeah, pretty much the same. I think he... I mean, I think he probably knew that, you know, from that reaction that he got, I, I think it probably put him in a quite a confident place, um, and I think that's what everyone wanted to 
to give him, you know, as well. After everything they'd been through in the past, in the previous few years, I think everyone wanted to not only see him back, but kind of show him the support. And, you know, in a way, sort of show him that, you know what, we, you do belong on stage and we do want to see you on stage. And to have that in front of, you know, in front of, uh, I mean, this is the World Music Awards, to have that in front of his peers would be, you know, quite something. But Michael didn't seem entirely comfortable. The backing track was the original studio recording of the song, and Michael was trying to compete with Stevie Wonder's solo vocals. Additionally, the audience appeared to be causing him problems. He looked towards the mixing desk as he sang, as if to ask why he couldn't hear himself. After a few lines he gave up, and headed down the catwalk that jutted into the audience. The crowd was going berserk. He shook hands, collected gifts from his fans, before coquettishly removing his custom Roberto Cavalli jacket and tossing it into the audience, who promptly tore it to shreds, trying to retain a trophy from the evening. Harrison Funk was in the pit with his camera, chasing Michael around. He described the chaos. He came out. People went nuts. The choir was behind him, or the the group of kids was behind him. And he just took off from there. You know, he walked past, and it, it's funny because as he walked past, I was on stage left, which is where, which is opposite where you were. I'm going to follow Michael from, from where he comes out down along that long runway. And this cable puller, for whoever's doing the TV recording, pulled her cable, and it got between my legs, and it tripped me. And Michael looked down, and he stifled a laugh. And he looked straight at me, and he, he just kind of like gave me this look like, get up and get back. <laughs> and, and so I jumped up and I, you know, I ran ahead. So I was a little ahead of, a little ahead of, and I followed him around and he came around to the other side of the stage where you were. It all happened so quickly. It was unbelievable. It was like a, it was almost like the difference between shooting Michael that night and shooting him on tour was tremendous because because it was nothing rehearsed i had no cues to follow i had no idea what was going to happen it was winging it and michael handled himself brilliantly you know he walked out he greeted people he waved he he was he was in constant communication with the audience his eyes never stopped darting back and forth between people and that's one thing michael had the ability to do is make people feel like they like he was performing to them and i thought he did that brilliantly okay he didn't you know he didn't sing through the whole song i think he was just reveling in the fact that, that he was reveling in the in in the the adulation in the the you know the the, the thousands of people adoring him and i think it it hit him at that point that he had to come back. I think he saw that people really loved him. After completing a circuit of the catwalk, Michael beckoned the choir to walk down and join him, then span around and again burst into song. His voice was deeper, naturally, than when he'd recorded the song in his twenties, but he hit the high notes exquisitely, contrary to some reports in the coming hours and days.
but no sooner had he started singing than the sound crew cut the track mid-sentence. They had hit the 11pm curfew. No matter. The audience noise only swelled. He hadn't performed Thriller, or even sung a full song, but the audience seemed not to care a jot. Michael remained on stage for some time after the song had ended, soaking up the adulation. As he went to walk off, he paused at the edge of the stage. He smiled broadly, placed a hand on his hip and raised a finger to his lips, teasingly, as if pondering whether to stay or to go. The cacophony grew. Michael raised his fist into a black power salute. A few moments more, and then he was gone, the crowd still roaring in his wake. I was just amazed that that um, how the this how it went, it, you know, the, the cheers just kind of went went up and 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 it it just kind of it was infectious. It it, it moved around the the entirety of, of Earl's Court. I thought the place could have fallen down with all the cheering and and the stomping. Um, do you remember how it was how the the floor was shaking from the stomping? I, I was next to monitors to audio monitors. I couldn't hear him speak and i know he did loudly and clearly but but it was just overrun by all the cheers it was unbelievable there was no mistaking the king is back i remember dashing for the train station soon after michael disappeared still trembling at what i'd just witnessed it had been a moving experience to watch michael receive such a rapturous response after the media's terrible reporting of his trial the previous year and the damage it was perceived to have done to his reputation. It had felt like the whole building was emphatically on his side. My ears were ringing from the crowd's noise. As Harrison said, there could be no doubt. The king was back. The following morning, Greg Spink switched on his television and was stunned to see a report which bore no resemblance to what he had witnessed at Earl's Court Arena just hours earlier. Uh, the following morning, I believe it's a weekday, um, I did my usual routine, and uh, I was watching GMTV here in the UK. Early in the morning, they had these two fans, inverted commas, on TV. And the basic blurb or headline of, of the um, current story on this show was uh, Michael Jackson booed off stage. I read it and I started sitting down, but every single thing that I was hearing from the TV set was a blatant lie. Michael, I was thinking... This didn't happen. Like I was there just last night. Um, I, you know, there was only certain people that was that was booed from stage, but it was not Michael at any point. I just couldn't believe it. It was it was that point where I sat there and I was thinking, how are these people finding this 
these liars? How are these people finding finding this funny to say such disgusting things or such stupid stuff when they know full well it didn't happen? And if they call themselves fans, then wow, I just couldn't believe it. I just could not believe that they were saying that because you yourself, you was there yourself, and you you did not hear any booze whatsoever for Michael. And uh, I just couldn't believe what I was seeing. And then uh, throughout the rest of the day, during my um usual routine throughout the day, I was seeing media everywhere saying that Michael Jackson was booed, which just was not true. Some media outlets were running valid stories about attendees who had bought expensive tickets based on press reports saying Michael would perform Thriller, and who were not unreasonably irked that they hadn't got what they paid for. But many news outlets were taking it too far. They were, in tandem, running fabricated reports that Michael had been booed off the stage. A story in the Evening Standard by reporters Chris Elwell Sutton and Valentine Lowe bore the headline, A Thriller? Far From It, as Jacko's one-line comeback leads to a chorus of booing. One line? A chorus of booing? What was this? The story labelled the performance an embarrassing disaster, which consisted of one mangled line, several missed high notes, and an exit to a chorus of boos from the audience. All three criticisms were fictitious. The mirror ran on its front page. He's bad. Comeback disaster as Jacko booed off. The Daily Record headlined its story, Really, really bad. Jacko booed off stage in first UK appearance for ten years. It was not Michael Jackson's first UK appearance for ten years. The story went on. Jackson scuttled off the stage after being booed by the crowd. This was a blatant lie. Michael had remained on stage for a long time, grinning widely as the audience showered him with deafening cheers. In my article, conjuring a chorus of boos, I wrote, I was in complete disbelief. Had one rogue reporter claimed Michael Jackson was booed off stage, I wouldn't have been so angry. Every profession has its bad apples. But for multiple reporters to have attended an event at which Michael Jackson was demonstrably and categorically not booed off stage, and yet to all then write articles claiming that he was, demonstrated a clear conspiracy between multiple parties to fabricate and perpetuate a bogus story. Harrison Funk told me he had struggled with the incident, because as a trained reporter, he didn't like to perpetuate conspiracy theories about the media's supposedly sinister machinations. But nonetheless, he said, on this occasion, the press had demonstrably made up the story. You know, one of the things that, that amazed me about the, the press coverage was, you know, that that there was even a mention of, of boos. I mean, I, there there could have been a boo here or a boo there. Here a boo, there a boo, everywhere a boo boo. I don't know. I didn't hear a single anything other than cheers and and complete adulation from Michael. Uh, I heard the the cheers and I heard the you know people just I heard people stomping their feet. I I never heard one single boo. I didn't hear anything anything that even sounded like get off the stage, Michael, or you know boo, Michael, <laughs> or as in the Princess Bride. Boo, hiss. <laughs> Not a thing. I mean, it was just, if I, and I'm sure this was your experience as well. It was complete and total just adoration for Michael. It was, it was, holy cow, the king is back. Here he is. It's on, he's on stage and, and, and he's singing and, you know, the, the he, he pointed to specific people and he, 
in the audience and, and uh, waved and, and made eye contact and threw his jacket and, and, you know, people were going nuts. It was wonderful. Here, here they, here the, the media was saying that Michael got booed off the stage. Michael didn't get booed off the stage. I, I don't know what people were looking at. I just couldn't, I, I just couldn't imagine what, what the media was seeing and, and listening to. All I heard was cheers and thumping and people going, and all I saw was, was fans going crazy. I can show you pictures of fans going absolutely nuts. So I don't know what, what in the world they were seeing or hearing, but it certainly wasn't what was going on in, in, in Earl's court that night. I just wonder whether this was, you know, uh, um, I don't want to say a conspiracy, but, but some sort of collusion amongst the media to, to make Michael look bad. I, again, I, I can't imagine no matter how, how sensational media is, I can't imagine them, Wasting time to concoct something as ludicrous as, 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 you know, this story about the audience booing Michael off stage. But then again, here it was in black and white in, uh, at least three tabloids. Harrison said he visited Michael the day after the ceremony and it was clear he had heard the reports and was unhappy with them. Yeah, I think that the intention was Michael was visiting with friends the next day. Um, and it was, you know, very social and, um, and, um, you know, I think that the basic idea was that, that his people and the people around Michael didn't want him to see the press reaction. Cause I was told, don't bring any newspapers. You know, when you come to say hello, don't, don't bring any newspapers. Um, and as it, as it turned out, um, you know, I think Michael, Michael found out immediately. I think he, he knew he was very upset. He was not happy about about this this media coverage. He, I, you know, he he said to me on the phone the next day that that he was shocked. Um, he, again, you know, it was the same thing. What show were they at? I didn't hear anybody booing. It it, it seemed like for the entire time he was out there, um, he wasn't nervous. I mean, I think he was a little bit he was a little bit surprised because he didn't, you know, he didn't. He didn't know where this was going. I think it would have been better for him to have rehearsed for sure, um, or at least to have come out and, and seen the stage. Um, but I think that I think that that you know the next day, you know, to hear you know that the that the press covered it the way they did, and you know, I think Michael, I know Michael, you know, expressed complete and total surprise that you know that that the press would have would have lied like that. And that, that more than one, more than one outlet, you know, said the same as the others. Where'd they get it? You know, again, I say, where did they get it from? Uh, so, so yeah, uh, you know, it was, it was a very, it was a very, um, unique situation. Uh, I, I can't compare it to anything. I, I wish I could. I can't. There's nothing I can compare it to. Raymond told me that both she and the event organisers had immediately set about attempting to counter the story, but in the face of a media which seemed to be colluding, they hardly made a dent. The myth went around the world. Michael Jackson getting booed off stage became the biggest source of mirth on many a topical panel show. It prompted further stories, 
The Guardian's Martin Hyde repeated the lies, declaring Michael Jackson the ex-king of pop, and claiming he only managed a few lines before the booing began. The Sunday Mirror captioned a follow-up story, Plastic Freak's comeback was truly diabolical. In fact, despite Ramon and the organizers' efforts to counter the story, even reporters who had started out accurately reporting the night's events changed tact and began parroting the bogus account. On the day after the ceremony, in the Mirror's 3am column, reporters Eva Simpson and Caroline Headley shared a joint byline on a story which read, He's back. Michael Jackson was the biggest winner at the awards. The star-studded event at London's Earl's Court Arena saw Jacko give a stunning performance of We Are The World. You sure are, Jacko. But by the following day, the same two reporters shared a byline on a story which referred to Michael Jackson's long-awaited comeback, which ended up with him being booed off just four lines into We Are The World. Despite all her experience in crisis management PR, Ramon Bain said she simply could not comprehend what she was witnessing. We we did our best efforts to try to neutralize the reports. And it took us a while because it was as if there was some collusion that everybody who was writing decided that they were going to write the same thing. Now, it would have been if it would have been good if one person had said, oh, he sound awful and was booed. But when everybody writes it, it's like, well, okay, well, what is going on here? Because there was no booing. And Michael Jackson was treated so warmly, he got, he became so emotional, he threw a $35,000 jacket in the, in the audience. And it was like, well, wait, what the hell? Are they looking, are they at the same event that I'm at? <laughs> did they, did they, any of them attend the same event? Even Rob Silverstein, who was there from Access Hollywood, the executive producer said, I don't get it. Were we not at the same event? And with that having um, been reported that he looked horrible, he sang horrible, he was horrible, we could not believe it. And it was mean-spirited. And we went out of our way, sending out press releases here in the United States and in Europe via electronic media. And see, at that time, there was no Twitter, Tumblr, YouTube, MySpace, Facebook, there was not. So I am sure had there been Facebook and Twitter and MySpace and Tumblr, his fans would have been able to counteract the erroneous reports, but none of that existed at that time. And if it did, it was just starting. Nobody had, nobody was using it. So we had to use the old-fashioned way of trying to neutralize a story and turning around. And that was through fax and email. And we were able to make some dent. There were some who, here in this country, uh, again, seemed to just not want to respect and report anything nice about Michael Jackson. And of course, they were very quick to pick up the tabloid reports that he was booed and he looked horrible and he acted horrible and he sound horrible. They, they welcomed the opportunity. So we had a double problem to, uh, try to mitigate the damages on, uh, we had a crisis 
that we had to try to turn around because we didn't want for people to come away with the idea that Michael Jackson just came over there looking like a wreck, acting like a wreck, and sounding like one. And I think that, you know, after 30 to 45 days, we were able to turn some of it around. Part of the problem, said Ramon, had been a mistake, which had seen Michael handed a microphone before he appeared on the stage. Had that not happened, the media could never have described the finale as a performance. In fact, said Ramon, it was never intended as a performance, and Michael should not have been given that microphone. Michael Jackson was a perfectionist. You can't perform at the World Music Awards without rehearsing, without a band, without an orchestra. We were told that Michael, they wanted Michael to um, surprise the choir that would be singing We Are the World over his death. I think the problem was that there was a stagehand who put a mic in Michael's hand. And because he walked out with the mic, it almost confirmed what misinformation that had been disseminated in the papers. It kind of confirmed it. But I think if he had not been so up and not so nervous, because this would have been his first appearance before his fan base in Europe and London since his acquittal, he would have probably thrown the mic down on the floor. But he was already nervous about what acceptance he would receive. He wasn't thinking. And in hindsight, I or him or all of the people who were in the back of the stage with him should not have accepted the mic and just let him walk out. But in ten years, I've never been able to shake the feeling that the media had decided before Michael ever took the stage that they would not allow this event to be a success. In researching for this show, I came across an editorial I'd never seen before. Published in The Sun ahead of the ceremony, it said, Be afraid. Be very afraid. He looks dreadful and he hasn't performed in years. The paper said its prediction of the ceremony was that Michael's performance would be a humiliating freak show, which he will regret. Given what occurred afterwards, it now reads more like a threat than a prediction. How had Michael reacted to the negative reports? I asked. He had said to me once, Ramon, I've been out here so long until I'm immune to it now. I've become immune to the attacks. Now, you know, that's when you look at it, it's admirable because, as I said, he had a very strong, inherent spiritual fiber. But that's sad for someone to have to say, I've been attacked and I've been disrespected for so long, I have become immune to the attacks and the disrespect. When you really sit back, and look at that, and analyze that, that's really a sad commentary, and they should be ashamed of themselves. Raymond said it was more than a month, and only after the ceremony began to be broadcast around the world, before some media began revising their reporting. However, by that time the story had become urban legend, widely accepted as fact. Author Randall Sullivan even included it in his Michael Jackson biography, Untouchable. He wrote, Michael sang only the chorus of the song before abruptly stopping, throwing his Roberto Cavalli jacket into the front row, then repeatedly telling the audience how much he loved them. 
There was little love coming back. Booze rained down from every corner of Earl's Court Arena. The phrase every corner of Earl's Court Arena struck me as an interesting one. In addition to being aware that the official footage might not be the most reliable source, after all, the heavy booing for Rihanna had been edited out of the TV broadcast, I remembered a comment Raymond had made about how social media might have helped to counter the lies, but there was one form of social media which was available to fans at that time, and which they did use, YouTube. Through YouTube, inspired by Randall Sullivan's comment, I was able to obtain primary evidence from every corner of Earl's Court Arena. Researching for this show, I went onto YouTube and watched every amateur video I could find of Michael's performance and its aftermath. This amounted to almost 40 minutes of amateur footage for a stage appearance which lasted just under 4 minutes. The footage I found captured the audience reactions from the left of the arena and the right, the front of the arena and the back, the ground floor of the arena and the tier. I could find no audible booing in any of those videos. Some of the uploaders wrote in their video descriptions that they had specifically uploaded their footage to show the media had fabricated the booing. One, named Fabato, uploaded two clips. Beneath one of them they wrote, This video is to go against what the newspapers are saying about Michael's career being over, that the crowd were booing him, stamping their feet because they lost their patience with him. What a load of bullshit. A clear example that we shouldn't believe in what newspapers ever say. I know the video is crap, but it's more about showing the truth. Here is the audio Fabato captured from the moment the song cut out until after Michael left the stage. It's recorded from the front left of the arena on the bottom floor. And here's some audio captured of the same moments by YouTube user 1980 Rihanna, who was at the back of the arena, on the right and in the tier, the exact opposite corner. I have never been able to find any professionally shot or amateur footage of Michael's appearance at the World Music Awards 2006, which has contained any audible booing. Greg Spinks told me that the incident had destroyed any trust he may ever have had in the media. My view from the media from that point onwards, and I used to separate media in terms of so you'd have your papers, and then you'd have your GMTV, like television. And you, you tend to sort of trust or get to know people when you're watching them on TV, or you, you sort of, you see them every day, you establish some sort of relationship with knowing who they are, joking around and stuff like that. And you wouldn't think that they would go out of their way to be so callous and be so manipulative. Yeah, I just couldn't believe it, and from that point onwards... They were all tied on the same brush from that point. So you would say that witnessing the way that this story went around the world basically destroyed your trust 
in the media. It completely destroyed my trust. From that moment onwards, it completely destroyed my trust with, with the media in general because for years I'd been reading, you know, the unjusts that Michael had had been given from the media. But firsthand, to see that and to, to actually be somewhere where I know something didn't happen and then to see it pasted everywhere, I just couldn't believe it. And from that moment onwards... You know, it completely destroyed my trust and, and any credibility they may have had was completely gone in my mind. It was not only Raymond who was faced with the infuriating task of trying and failing to explain to people what had really happened in London that night. The overwhelming media coverage afforded to the lie means that fans who attended have struggled for a decade to convince even their nearest and dearest of what actually occurred that night. I spoke to Angela Candy about the frustration of witnessing what was done to Michael after the ceremony, and of seeing disbelief in the faces of those to whom we recounted the story. I remember being at work, and someone I hadn't seen in a while but knew I was going. Yeah, she asked me how it was, and she sort of kind of gave me a like a grimace kind of look, like, oh, I heard he got booed, that's really... And as soon as I was like, no, actually, he didn't. It was really weird. I don't know why they said that. Um, she just sort of looked at me like, oh, really? Like I was kind of like a delusioned fan that just uh, decided to, you know, <laughs> sit like with my selective hearing. That was really frustrating as well. Um, I find that happens a lot with uh, with being a, a Michael Jackson fan. You're constantly having to battle the media yourself just to make people, you know, kind of understand and I had the exact same thing, except the next day. So I was at uni at the time, and I went back to uni the day after the ceremony, like the next morning. Um, I remember walking along the corridor and bumping into two of my classmates, Leah and Carly, and they just sort of looked at me in this pitying way um, and said, mm, how was it? And... I had no idea. I'd not seen a newspaper or anything. I had no idea what was going on. So I was just going, oh my God, you wouldn't believe it. It was the most phenomenal thing I've ever seen. I've never seen a reaction like it. The crowd went ballistic. It was so loud. My ears were hurting. It was deafening. And they were looking at me like I was deranged. (laughs) right? And I had no idea why. They were just kind of looking at me like, oh, okay. You know? It wasn't until about lunchtime that I found out that the press was saying he'd been booed off stage, and I just couldn't believe it. And ever since then, it's ten years now, and I've told this story to lots of people over the years about how I was there and he didn't get booed, and then the next day all the papers said he was booed. And you can see, when you're telling this story to people, you can see that they think you're insane. They just think you're making it up. Yeah. Don't you find you get that look a lot you know being a michael jackson fan whenever something's happening you know they have they're always getting one one uh twisted version of the story and approach you with that it's like well actually that's that's not how it, you know things have happened yeah if yeah. you want to know the truth and then it's like cut off not interested you're you're a bit kind of psycho you're a bit of a psycho <laughs> fan not yeah. gonna not gonna go there with you that's the thing, because the media did it so often with him that mm. it's almost like every single element of his story, as people think they know it and understand it, you, you have to go, oh no, the real story with that is this. 
And where you're constantly coming up with ex explanations and excuses, it does make you look slightly mad, as if yeah. you're almost like a conspiracy theorist. But exactly, exactly. With regard to this this episode, this particular thing, yeah. you know, even if you're just explaining it to a relative, or if you're explaining it to a colleague at work, or I just find that when you start telling them this story about how the media fabricated that he'd been booed off stage, mm. they just look at you with massive scepticism, as if you must be the one that's making it up. But yeah. is that have you noticed that over the years as well? Absolutely. But do you find that even with people you know quite well, even with people that are, you know, friends that you consider good friends, you tell them this story and they just, there's always an air of scepticism. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is, uh, you know, one of many stories that have come up where I've had to kind of, I, I guess it's like a, you know, just like you said, it's, you just look like a, a conspiracy nut when it comes to Michael, because it's always only Michael that they do this with. <laughs> you know, there's, there are, you know, I'm not, there are other people that they do it with, but with him, it was just, it was just constant, you know, making him look silly, making him, you know, look like a, a nut job. And then it makes us look stupid because like, well, why would you, you know, why would you be a fan of this nut job? And when you try and explain, you know, the actual uh, story, like you said, you just look like a conspiracy nut. So how does it make you feel when you're talking to somebody who you have quite a good relationship with, when you, you're explaining this thing to them and you can see in their eyes that they don't really believe you? How does that make you feel? Frustrated really really frustrated i mean there's this one guy that i work with who he'll constantly bring up michael and and kitty jokes and i've kind of had to you know i've worked with him for 10 years and he's, he's you know he's, he's a nice guy he is you know <laughs> he's a decent guy but he just this one thing with me he'll just kind of go go to because i think he knows it pushes my buttons and for, i've had to kind of over the past few years learn to not let it push my buttons and it, it it can be really frustrating you just feel like you're sort of being made a joke out of i guess so you were there you saw that he was not booed off stage and you were aware that that it was reported that he was booed off stage you were uh you know that that incident has been included now in biographies in documentaries which people will return to for years as a source of information on Michael Jackson. So how does it make you feel to know that that claim that he was booed off stage is now included as a matter of fact in some historical documents? It's sad because, you know, a lot of that whole thing is just one example of many different things that, you know, a lot of that I've witnessed as well. You see something happen, or you you you've looked into like you know the trial, for example, like looking into the court transcripts, and then seeing how it played out in the media. It it's really I, I don't really know what the word is, but the idea that people in you know fifty sixty years time are just going to have a really skewered version 
of the truth is is quite sad because he's not going to be around. You know, he's obviously not around anymore to defend himself. It really does fall to, you know, the family, the people that knew him, his fans, to try and keep that truth alive as as closely as as sorry to keep that you know close to the truth as possible. But um, you know, it kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier it's like you just look like a conspiracy nut when someone's got three books in front of them that says something happened and you're just sitting there going no actually it didn't uh, it didn't happen that way it, it it's it's really sad and it's really frustrating and i really do hope that one day something happens to to kind of wake people up do you ever consider just not telling people what really happened because you you can't be bothered with being looked at like a crazy person. Does it make you reluctant to tell the truth? Um, no, no, it doesn't. Because I mean, I do kind of try and go into detail as much as I can. And I, I know it sort of it, it does make me look a bit silly to some people, but I mean that's their opinion, isn't it? I guess mm. I know what happened. I was there. I know the truth, so I'll say it. I couldn't have put it better myself, and I hope that this show will contribute in some small way to keeping the truth alive. Thank you for listening to this special edition of the MJ Cast. Before I sign off, I'd like to thank each of the contributors for being so generous with their time and so candid with their thoughts and their memories. Harrison Funk will be producing a limited edition box set of images he took of Michael at the World Music Awards to celebrate the 10th anniversary. Each box set will contain seven exclusive images and will be available in one of two sizes. Anybody interested in details of the box sets can contact Harrison via www.harrisonfunk.com. If you'd like to engage further with the MJCast team, you can visit our website at www.themjcast.com. We're also available on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and Tumblr under the name The MJCast. And all of our episodes are uploaded to youtube.com forward slash plus The MJCast. All of our episodes can be streamed and downloaded via our website, but you can also subscribe to us on iTunes, and we love to receive feedback from our listeners, so please feel free to send us an email at themjcast at iCloud.com. This episode of the MJCast is dedicated to James Newman. 